You've probably heard the saying, uh, you should begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. And it means you need to know where you want to end up before you kick things off. You should know where you're going. Have a destination. It will save a lot of retracing and, and backtracking along the way. Uh, and today we finish up our series on the parables of Jesus. And in this message, this last message of the parable series, we're going to end with the beginning in mind. We're going to end with the beginning in mind. We're going to take a few minutes here to remind ourselves of how we kicked off this entire series uh, of what we learned in that very first message seven weeks ago of what parables are and how we are meant to understand them. Because it's really critical for this parable specifically. And after we talk about parables themselves for a while, uh, we're going to identify the true meaning of this parable uh, that we're about to read today. And I believe it's absolutely perfect for Palm Sunday, the Sunday right before Easter, because Next Sunday, we're going to be talking about the most incredible example of God's love for us we will ever know. And this parable that we're going to talk about today is a perfect springboard into that conversation next week. So let's talk about parables for a few minutes. The word parable is taken from a Greek word, which means to throw alongside. You throw something alongside something else, that's a parable. Uh, parables are helpful because they take a, a really difficult and hard to grasp concept like the kingdom of God, the majority of Jesus' parables are about that exact topic, the kingdom of God, and you lay something down next to it that is easily relatable in real life, okay? Uh, in Jesus' day, he used images like farming and fishing. Those were very typical topics for the parables of Jesus because they were things that every single person in his audience could relate to because they lived those activities every day of their lives. So in his day, it was like the kingdom of God is like, and then he would talk about farming, fishing, any number of things that were everyday life circumstances. So today, you know, Jesus, if he were teaching parables today to us, he may say the kingdom of God is like driving on 35 in rush hour traffic, or the kingdom of God is like receiving notifications on your iPhone. Or the kingdom of God is like going to the refrigerator and finding that all the milk has been drunk by your seven children. That may be just my case, but you know, it's something I can relate to. So he's going to choose things that are relatable to the culture in which he is speaking to. So when we look at the parables of Jesus, we've got to put ourselves in the mindset and as a first century Jew who is hearing these stories because that's who he was addressing it to. So let's go ahead and read through today's parable. It's a longer one because it includes some interactions uh, with his disciples that help us to understand the how and the why Jesus used this message of te teaching and it will really help us to understand the main thrust of this parable better as we look into it. So we're gonna look at Mark chapter four, uh, verses one through 20 today. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lakeshore. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the feed seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. 
Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. And since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what the parables meant. And he replied, you are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message, only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. All right, so here is the question after reading this 20 verses long parable uh, and interaction around the parable in Mark. Here's the question. Do parables bring clarity or do parables bring confusion? And the answer in typical Jesus cryptic teaching style is both. <laughs> they bring clarity and they bring confusion. And you don't have to have any special knowledge or special training to understand parables. That, that's not a requirement to understand them. You don't have to have this huge, deep background. You don't have to have this deep theological training to understand parables. But they're really not simple at all. They're designed to knock the hearer off balance. Oftentimes, parables kind of make, make the people who are listening say, wait a minute, what? Say that again. Because it, it flew in the face of what they were taught or what their understanding was or what made the most sense to them in the natural. Uh, to truly understand a parable, they've got to see things differently than how they have seen things in the past or the way they've thought about things previously. And here's the most important thing that you can hear about how to understand parables. Parables can only be truly understood as an insider, as someone who looks at the story from the perspective of the person telling it. So someone who allows themselves to be taken into the story and understands who God is and who humanity can become through him. You've got to get to that place to truly understand the parable. And so in order to understand the parables of Jesus, you have to know Jesus. You've got to have this understanding of who Jesus is in order to get 
the parables that Jesus is teaching because all of the parables have to be passed through that filter. They have to be understand in the context of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life and how he wants to transform you. Because if we just look at it purely from the story itself, they're not going to make a lot of sense. It's only when we get beneath the surface and to get beneath the surface, Jesus is our access point to get beneath the surface of the parable. One of my favorite ways to look at parables is to think of them like stained glass windows. Think of a parable as a stained glass windows. When you are on the outside of a building that has a stained glass window on a bright sunny day, those windows are dull and they are lifeless. There's nothing that pops about those windows if you're on the outside of a building on a bright sunny day. But when you are on the inside of that building, they are spectacularly colored, they are beautiful. As the light passes through and you're on the inside, you get to see this incredible window, stained glass window come to life. Your position on the inside reveals their full potential and reveals their meaning. And that's, that's how parables are best and really can only be understood is on the inside. When you've passed from the outside to the inside, when you pass from just a spectator to part of the community with Christ, now you get to see the parable unfold and come to life for you. And it takes on new meaning for us on the inside. Another way to think of a parable is like fishing. There's a hook hidden inside the bait, if you will. Uh, the hook is the word of God that is personified in Jesus. And you are not meant to understand a parable outside of that person telling it, outside of relationship with Jesus. Uh, the parables are not simply good advice, okay? They are the good news. Uh, they are the gospel. And so they capture you into relationship with Jesus. They're meant to draw you in and make you want to learn more the deeper truth, the underpinnings of that story so you can really flesh it out and understand it. And that's what it was intended to do to these crowds that were surrounding Jesus. Uh, one more way to look at parables, they're like the cloud that separated the the fleeing Israelites from the pursuing Egyptians, you know, when the Egyptian army was chasing after the, the, uh, the Israelites as they were fleeing from them. And this, this pillar of cloud separated them. And it brought darkness to one side to the Egyptians and it brought light to the other side to the Israelites. That same cloud was a tool of confusion or a tool of clarity depending on their position with God and where they were at. And so that's what the parables do for us. So before we talk about the actual meaning of this passage and what the primary takeaway is, I want to address the middle of this narrative first, okay? The middle part of these, this story, you have the, the, the actual telling of the parable up front, and then at the end, you have Jesus explaining this parable to the disciples, but in the middle, you have these few verses where Jesus is kind of talking about parables in general. And he makes some statements that are very, very unique at, at the best and confusing and really almost scary 
at worst. And I want to address that uh, where Jesus had the discussion with his disciples. And I think it's the most difficult part of this passage. This is the hardest to wrap your head around and especially wrap your heart around. And I think it's one of the more difficult passages in the entire Bible to understand. Uh, when you first read it, it makes you really feel kind of uncomfortable. And why, why is that? Because we don't like to think and we don't, we don't understand how the Bible could tell us that God would intentionally keep some people at arm's length, keep them away, keep them out of heaven. It doesn't line up with what we know about God's heart and character from what we read elsewhere. So let's take a look at this and try to, try to gain some understanding about this. In verse 10, we see Jesus having this private moment uh, with the 12 and with the other followers gathered around, and they ask Jesus for the meaning behind the parable. So they wait, you know, they have this huge crowd. Jesus is it's such a huge crowd that Jesus is forced off the shore into a boat where he does this teaching. And uh, there's, uh, it was on the Sea of Galilee, and there's this, there's this place on the Sea of Galilee that functions as this as the, the shoreline progresses rapidly up into the hills that ends in mountains. And, and there's this natural amphitheater that is formed there that they've done testing that without any amplification, without a megaphone, you know, without a microphone, which they didn't have anyway back in those days, uh, that you could easily, your voice could be amplified naturally to reach thousands of people from this place uh, on the shoreline or just offshore. So Jesus is in this boat doing this teaching. That's how big the crowds are. And the disciples keep their mouths shut while Jesus is teaching because they don't want to look like they don't know. You know, they're, they're the ones that follow Jesus around. They should know, right? But they don't. They're clueless. But they wait until the crowds have gone away. They have a private moment with Jesus later. And that's when, hey, uh, Jesus, so that whole uh, parable thing, what in the world did that mean? And so they, they get Jesus alone and then they ask him, and it's in the private settings that we see Jesus kind of pulling back the curtain and, and spending time with his followers, his close followers, and really unpacking some of these things. This is where he spells it out plainly for the disciples. And even then, they still often don't get it, but Jesus tries. But verses 11 and 12 is where we really get into thickness and, and the confusing portion of this. So verses 11 and 12, let me read it again. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. All right, so this is one of those where I say, wait, say that again? What was that? Doesn't God want them to turn to him? I mean, doesn't God want to forgive them? Doesn't God want to be in relationship with them? And the answer to that is yes, of course he does. All right, we know that. How do we know that? Because of what the Bible says in other places, right? 2 Peter 3, 9. This is about as clear as you can get. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone everyone to repent. So here in 2 Peter, it is spelled out as clear as you can get. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So that's where 
Jesus, or that's where the Bible comes from with regard to God's attitude towards mankind. God wants everyone saved. So how then do we reconcile this passage in Mark chapter 4? How do we understand this? Uh, what's the best tool that we have to interpret scripture? Anytime you're trying to interpret scripture, the best tool that we have at our disposal to interpret scripture is other scripture. Okay, go to other passages that talk about a similar topic and see what the Bible has to say about that topic in other places, especially when it's right next to it. So we have verses 11 and 12. The next verse, verse 13, helps shed some light on what we just read. And here's what it says in verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables. If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? So what Jesus is saying is this, this is kind of the key that unlocks all parables. What he's talking about right here, this whole concept is critical for us. What Jesus is basically saying is that if you don't get this one, if you don't understand this one that I'm talking about right now, you have no chance of understanding any of them. This is the key. If you don't understand who Jesus is, then what he says isn't important. If you don't understand who Jesus is, then what he says isn't important. It begins with a relationship. It begins with intimacy. It begins with a connection. It begins with salvation. And understanding comes on the other side of that faith moment, of that new story that is written in our lives. If you don't have a relationship with him, then you're not an insider. If you're not saved, then you're going to be blinded to the rest of the truth. It, it it ties back to the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin that we've talked about in the past. The, the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin is unforgivable because you're rejecting the only way we can be forgiving, be forgiven. If you commit the unforgivable sin, in other words, you're rejecting the voice of the Holy Spirit, which is the only way that we can be convicted of sin, which is the only way that we can repent and be saved. So it begins there. And it's so critical that we have this understanding. And, and we, we kind of get this backwards sometimes. We think we have to fix people. We have to argue with people into the kingdom of God. We have to teach them about, you know, this truth and this truth and help fix their understanding of this. And well, if they don't understand that God created the world and they believe in evolution, well, then how in the world can, can they ever come to faith in Christ? No, 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 no. You got it backwards. Introduce them to Jesus. Let them understand God's love for them. Let them understand the problem of sin and how we need a savior lead them into a saving relationship with Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. That's what the Bible tells us. So we need to focus on introducing people and ourselves coming into relationship with Jesus, understanding who Jesus is, and God's relationship to us through Jesus. The rest will all fall into place on the other side of that. That's why this is the key to understanding all the other parables. 
Uh, that's what this parable really is all about. People won't understand anything until they've stopped just following and, and being a part of the spectacle, okay? I mean, Mark, in case you've never heard me talk about the Gospel of Mark, Mark was not a fan of crowds. Crowds were always spoken of in a negative way. They got in the way. They were obnoxious. They, they antagonized Jesus. They, they pushed Jesus around. They kept him from being comfortable. It was just a big problem for Mark. So until people have stopped just following and being part of the spectacle, the traveling circus that's surrounded and, uh, surrounding and following Jesus, and until they've started hearing with faith what Jesus is saying, they're not going to get it. There, there are a ton of churchgoers today who are just part of the show. They show up, they do the deal, they punch their weekly ticket. Okay, I've done the church thing, but they're not close to Jesus. They don't know him, they just know about him. And man, there's a fundamental difference there that we all need to make sure we're on the right side of in our faith story. It's not enough to just know about Jesus. You have to know him. Jesus was more concerned with people hearing him than he was about people just listening to him. Okay? Maybe you've heard this phrase come out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospels. He who has ears, let him hear. We saw it in this passage in Mark. We see it repeated in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew eleven fifteen. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand so hearing is not just listening, it is listening with understanding. So there is an active part of that. It's not just hearing the sounds hit your ears, it's leaning in, it's striving to understand. So let's take a, a look at what kind of hearing we're talking about in this parable. The first few kinds of, of hearing uh, that is described in this parable where Satan steals the seeds where it falls in the rocks, where it's choked out by other desires. The word here, okay, is in the aorist tense. That is a way that verbs are conjugated uh, in the Greek. And the aorist tense is a one-time event. So it's one-time hearing. It's something done simply. It's something done finally. It's one and done. The, it's kind of like when I decide to run you know, and, and get in shape. It's one and done for me. I go running one time. I'm like, okay, that's enough. And then it's, you know, months before I get back to it. The first three attempts at hearing imply that it was quick and superficial. They, they weren't really leaning in. They weren't, no effort was put into it. And someone who casually hears the gospel isn't going to have the staying power to resist the enemy and the distractions that the world is constantly throwing at us because as you well know, the current of this world is not flowing in the direction of Jesus. And so we're constantly fighting the current of this world to stay close to Jesus and to move in the direction that he's leading us. And if you don't have a good understanding of the gospel, if you're not actively hearing and understanding the gospel, we're not going to be able to counteract the current of this world. And it's their failure at hearing that confirms them as outsiders and now helps us to get verse 11 and 12 where they can't understand or believe or receive forgiveness. You can't if you're not truly hearing and leaning in. You're never going to understand. You're never going to receive. You're never going to be different from that. And it prevents them from understanding any of the other parables that Jesus is going to teach because it begins here. But the final hearing, the one that fell on fertile or good soil, 
is something very, very different. That is not the aorist tense, the one and done uh, tense of the verb. It's delivered in the present tense. And in Greek, a present tense action is something continual and ongoing. It doesn't stop. It keeps going. It's intentional. It's the opposite of what the others have done in hearing. So people who hear like this with effort and determination and dedication and persistence, they are insiders. They hear, they receive, they bear fruit. They are disciples. And the promise is attached to them. They will bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times. So let me challenge you this morning. Don't just listen here. When you, when you listen to a sermon on Sunday morning, when you listen to the word of God, when you listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to our church, take time to not just listen, but to hear. On the other side of the message, pray about what you heard. Pray about what the Holy Spirit, take notes as you, as you listen to it. So that way you can remember some key thoughts later of what the Holy Spirit said to you in that moment. Be intentional about it. And then pray through that later. That's what our neighborhood groups are designed to do, is to process the message from Sunday and help us understand how do we flesh this out? How do we live this out? It's moving from listening to hearing as we discuss it, as we pray through it, as we really lean into it, as we take action on the other side, we've moved from listening to hearing. Not just today, but every day. Not just one time, but every time. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. Listen and respond. God is always speaking. He doesn't just speak on Sunday morning in, the, in a sermon. He, does, he speaks every time you open the Bible. He speaks every time you pray. He speaks to us uh, through other people. He speaks through our circumstances, both good and bad. But most of all, he speaks through his word, the Bible. God is always speaking, and we need to be always listening, always hearing, and always responding. Okay, so let's talk about the specific meaning of this parable, and then we'll wrap up. What is the primary takeaway from this parable? What is Jesus telling his listeners as he goes into this parable? There are at least three different ways that we can, we can go too far, we can go in a wrong direction with this parable, okay? The first is the simple mistake of being too literal. Some people believe the Bible is always literal. It's not always literal. Sometimes it's figurative. It should be obvious that in the parable of the sower, Jesus isn't describing a new way of farming in the kingdom of God, okay? He's not telling people how to farm properly. Uh, any farmer worth his salt would know that you don't turn on the seed spreader when you leave the barn and just let it fling seed down the road, onto the shoulder, into the drainage ditches. Even with my two very brown non-green thumbs. I know that in order for plants to grow, the soil first has to be cultivated. Good soil is nutrient rich. It has to be fertilized. It needs good irrigation and drainage. Uh, it needs proper sunlight, not too little, not too much. The first mistake to avoid is to realize that Jesus is not prescribing a new farming style for his followers, okay? So don't go literal on a parable. The second mistake we often make is allegorizing. And a lot of people do this. Allegorical interpretation of the parables has been a popular sport over many years. And we aren't helped by the fact that Jesus himself then later on interprets his own parable in an allegorical way in the second half of the passage here. 
in an allegory, every single element of the story is designed to be representative of something else, someone or something else. It's represented there. There's a point to every comparison. When Jesus tells the parables, he's driving home one main point. We need to be laser focused on the one main point that Jesus wants us to take away when we read a parable, not 20 points, okay? Allegory is a problem because allegory is, is just too easy. And I don't think parables are supposed to be easy. Otherwise, everybody would understand them, right? If God is the sower and the word is the seed and we are the soil and that's all we're supposed to understand here, then what is left for us to decipher? There's nothing else left to talk about. We've got it. Okay, walk away. But Jesus even goes so far as to tell us what kind of person each particular kind of soil represents. So he kind of gives that away there. The hard-hearted path doesn't understand the word. The shallow rocky soil won't allow faith to take root. The unprepared and weed-infested soil will choke out faith and prevent it from growing. And the good soil allows the word to take root and will flourish. It all seems really simple, right? Too simple, because if it's all so straightforward, why do we even need to discuss it? The answer is right there. There has to be something deeper, something hidden except to those who are on the inside. And when we look at a parable as an allegory, it often leads us down the road to a third common mistake, and that is moralism. Okay, what is moralism? Moralism in the context of what we're talking about here is this. From the first time we hear the story of the three little pigs uh, as kids, we're conditioned to find the moral in every story, right? Build your house out of bricks. Don't cry wolf. Uh, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch. And for goodness sakes, if you're talking about the parable of the soil, soil be good soil. You know, that's the moral. That's the takeaway. Be good soil. We're supposed to be fertile soil. Having heard the description of the four types of soil, we can't help but put those words on the lips of Jesus. Be good soil. But in reality, he never says that. He doesn't talk about us. He never says be good soil because that's not what the parable of the sower is, out about, is all about. Why? Because we can't be good soil. We can't transform ourselves anyway. It's not a bad principle. You know, we should strive for that. We should look in, into that. But it's not the main focus of Jesus as he tells this story. But even though I know and I believe that, that that's not the focus here, I still spent a good chunk of this week spinning my wheels in mistake number three. I was trying to find the moral of this story. I knew the moral wasn't be good soil, but by gum, I was going to find the moral of this story. And I read and I prayed and I listened and I determined to crack the code of this parable. What does it mean? And I finally realized that the true moral of this story is the moral of my week wrestling through this. I can't make it say what I want it to say. Neither can you. None of us can do that. I can't make this story have a neat and tidy moral and I can't make myself into good soil. I just can't do that. This isn't to say that if you think you are a path or you think you are rocky soil or you're full of weeds, that there's no hope for you. Exactly the opposite is true. This passage tells us that. First of all, none of us here is one type of soil. We've all got all of that in our lives. We've got moments where we're the path. We've got moments where we're the rocks. We've got moments where we're choked out by weeds. We've got moments where we're really fertile soil and we're ready to receive. We've got all of that. And pay attention here because this is the main point right here. This is it. Lean forward if you need to. Cup your hands behind your ears, whatever you need to do, but pay attention. Despite 
all the talk about soils in this passage. The parable of the soil of sower is not about dirt. The parable of the sower is, as the name tells us, really about the sower. This parable is about God, not us. This parable reveals things to us about the character and the nature of God, not about you and me. It isn't about you. It isn't about me. It isn't about the church. It isn't about people outside the church. It isn't about people who don't know Jesus. It isn't about the condition of the soil of our hearts. This parable of the sower is about, I know this is mind-blowing, the sower. The story is a description of our reckless God. Now, reckless? How could God be reckless? There's a worship song that we sing called Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And it got a lot of flack in some circles when it came out uh, because people couldn't wrap their heads around calling God's love reckless. God doesn't do anything recklessly, they would say. He always has a purpose. And, and to some extent, they're right in that statement. But let's think about that for a few minutes. God knows how foolish it is to spread seed on soil that's not going to grow. But he does it anyway. And that's the point of the parable of the sower. It's not about how we can position ourselves better to hear, although we should. It's not about how we respond, although we need to. It's about how incredibly loving and extravagant God is by reaching out with his love to every single person who has ever lived, even knowing that many will never respond to it. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were entrenched in sin and rooted in sin. And every single person who has ever been born has been rooted and entrenched in sin. And God sent Jesus to die for you and to die for me while we are buried underneath the rubble of sin, many of whom will never receive God's offer of love and forgiveness. They will reject it outright. They will say, I've got this. I don't see the need. I don't need that. God spreads his love with reckless abandon in hearts that are all four different types of soil at once. He throws seed at the disciples who over and over and over and over prove that they have hard hearts and stiff necks and are slow to understand and however else you want to describe them. Jesus continues to throw seed at them, continues to work with them, continues to help them see what God is up to in the world around them. And he scatters the seed of the gospel with wild recklessness. And even when it is clear that his disciples just don't get it, they don't get it. When some turn, turn him over to the authorities, they abandon him in his hour of need, they deny ever knowing him, Jesus continues to pour out his love on them by inviting them back into the fold on the other side of the resurrection. Every one of us needs to understand that God's reckless love never stops reaching out to you.
And that is the point of the parable of the sower. God's reckless love never stops reaching out to you. And so what does that mean for us? Obviously, there's tons of implications for how we respond to God's love and why we need to respond to God's love and what that response should look like. But it even has some implications about what, what it means to us to reach out to others for evangelism as we sow seeds of God's love in people's lives. And evangelism, man, we overcomplicate this so much. What implications do we have as we need to imitate God, right? Not Number one, our job is to scatter seed everywhere. Don't try to figure out if someone's going to receive God's word, if someone's going to respond to God's love. Just tell the story. Don't write somebody off just because, oh, they're too difficult or they, no way, I've seen their social media posts, I've heard what they said about God, they're not going to respond to it, so I, I shouldn't talk to them. Our job is to scatter seed everywhere. Second, we're not responsible for soil. Your job is not to soften somebody up. Your job is not to prepare the soil. Your job is just to share the story. We're also not responsible for the harvest. Your job is simply to share the story. We just scatter seed. We tell the truth. We share the good news. God will bring a miraculous harvest as we're faithful 30, 60, 100 times. It's amazing. Your job is not to convince somebody into the kingdom of heaven. Your job is not to convict them of what they're doing wrong. What are we supposed to do? What's our responsibility? Be a witness. What does a witness do? They testify to what they have seen, what their experience has been. Share the story of what God has done in your life and he will take care of the rest. That is evangelism. Don't overcomplicate telling others about Jesus. We treat evangelism as this unapproachable, overwhelming, impossible task when the reality is really quite the opposite. Don't stress about how much you know or don't know. Uh, what you've done or haven't done, none of that is critical. What is critical is that we are scattering seed. We're telling our story. We're talking about what God has done for us. You may not know a ton of scripture yet. You may not have theological arguments at the ready to debate with someone, but that isn't what evangelism is. We're telling the story of what God has done for us personally. We're sharing the gospel with everyone we can, with every opportunity we have, we are called to be reckless in sharing our story because God is downright reckless in his love for you and me. We who continue in the proud, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and slow-to-understand tradition of the disciples. That's who we all are. We who ignore the teaching of Jesus in stories that call us to action, we who neglect to build the kingdom of God and instead focus on building our own kingdom. We who show again and again why we need forgiveness and yet forget again and again to give it. Here's the good news. In fact, it's the greatest, good, greatest news ever shared. It's the news that saw its revealing on the cross at Calvary and the truth of that moment echoes now throughout the centuries. God continues to throw the seeds of his love to us. He pours out his love on us relentlessly and recklessly. And when he finds even the smallest patch of good soil in our hearts, and he nurtures the kingdom within us, producing an abundant harvest 30, 60, and even 100 times. This parable is about God 
and his wildly extravagant love for us. And that's the most important thing we could ever hear, experience, or know. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and we are so incredibly grateful for your love for us. God, your love is beyond anything we can possibly understand, that we will ever understand. God, you said, you said it in your own word that we will never understand your love. It's too high, too deep, too wide. It's impossible for us to understand. But God, we recognize the reality of your love for us, and we respond to that today. God, we thank you for your reckless love that cares enough to, to reach out to every person, even those who will never respond to you. You died for them. You died for us. You died for me. And Jesus, I ask today that you would help us to live as if that love is a reality in our lives. God, let us live to honor you. Let us live to shout your love out to a world that needs to hear it. Let us be the sowers of seed in this world, that you would, you would help us to scatter the seed of your love to a world that needs to hear it. God, without complicating it, without being intimidated by it, but just simply telling the story of what you've done in our hearts and lives. God, we thank you for it. We thank you for this parable that helps us to see just how amazing your love is for us. God, let us live in it. God, give us a great week as we lead into Easter. Give us a great Easter Sunday as a church family as we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. God, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. It's in your name we pray, amen.